Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so as I'm sure anyone who's listening to this podcast knows, 2021 was quite a year to be doing anything in the bike industry and especially trying to get hold of bikes and parts. But despite all that, Blister had its busiest year ever, and we reviewed more bikes and gear and suspension and apparel and all kinds of stuff than we have ever before. And along the way, we also put out our very first ever mountain bike buyer's guide, which you should check out if you have not already. So we figured it was a good time to sit down with a bunch of our reviewers and have them give us a bit of a rundown on a number of the most standout products that they spent time on last year, whether that's bikes or parts or apparel or whatever else, and also offer up some predictions for the coming year and give a few sneak previews of some things we'll be spending time on in 2022. And along the way, we also get distracted talking about beer and a bunch of other random stuff as well. And speaking of things that are coming up at Blister, you should definitely come pay us a visit for the upcoming Blister Summit in February in our home of Mount Crested Butte. It will have ski demos from a ton of great brands, including Renown, Rosignol, Dinastar, Forefront, Folsom, Solomon, Wonder Alpine, Wagner, Moment, Atomic, Line, and Glade Optics, and there are sure to be some more brands added in the coming weeks. So come pay us a visit at the summit, and we look forward to seeing you there. And so with that, let's get right into our little roundups of the highlights of 2021. And first up, we've got Dylan Wood. Well, Dylan Wood, good to be chatting with you again. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I've had snow on my mind a lot recently, way more than than bikes and dirt. But yeah, it's been good over here and hope things are going well in Seattle as well. Yeah, doing well. Can't complain at all. So our mission here is just to do kind of a 2021 recap, and I guess, why don't you just take it from the top, kind of any particular standout bikes or other products from your last year of testing stuff that you want to shout out? Yeah, um, I mentioned this before, but the Pivot Trail 429 and the Enduro build is one of those bikes that I still just keep thinking back on about how much fun I had on it and the amount of terrain I was able to enjoy on it. Um, It's one of those products that I was pretty salty to hand over to Eric and let him use it. Um, So that, that was really a standout bike for just how fun it was on really mellow terrain, uh, how good it climbed, how light it was but it was also really hard to find the top end of that bike in terms of the terrain that we were able to take it on and enjoy it on. And yeah, just, I think pivot did a really great job for that bike. And I think it'll work for a really wide range of people. I I guess the only uh, use case I can see would be just regularly taking to the bike park. I don't think would be a great idea. Um, So yeah, trail four, two, nine was great. And in the realm of bikes, I'd also say the Norco range really stood out sort of for the opposite reason. Um, Whereas the trail 429 was a really versatile bike. I feel like the range was not versatile in a, in a good way. Right. I feel like bike companies these days are, are sort of juggling, you know, making their long travel enduro oriented bikes 
at being, you know, good at going really fast downhill and enduro racing, but also has to be somewhat appealing to the consumer that's maybe gonna, never going to get it between the tape, but just wants a long travel bike that they can ride every day. I feel like Norco sort of didn't do much with the versatility side of that in, in a really good way that I, that I respect in the same way that I, you know, respect Armada for making the ARG two, you know, or, or Dina star for making the M pro one Oh five, right. It's, it's the right, it's a really great tool for a pretty, I'd say a pretty small group of people. And I think it's great to see, uh, Norco going that way. And, um, I guess I'm hoping for maybe other bike companies to see that and, you know, maybe not sacrifice so much in the world of versatility to just make a bike that really charges. Yeah. So we'll start with the range here. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time on that one as well. We're actually putting the finishing touches on the review for that. It should be up by the time this episode goes live so people can check that out. And uh, like you said, yeah, it's uh, just it's a really a whole lot of bike and even by the standards of 170 travel enduro bikes is just quite the big burly bruiser but if you've got the room to open it up and uh want a bike that can just fully charge and is kind of the closest approximation of a downhill bike that you can still pedal sort of uphill it's really something special that's a cool one and i'm kind of disappointed that i never got to spend any time on that trail 429 because you and eric especially had really good things to say about it and it seems like a super versatile option that you know it's a 120 rear travel uh with a 140 millimeter fork in the enduro build that you guys are spending time on and just sounded like something that pedaled great and was a lot of fun on more rolling terrain where you didn't necessarily have something super big and burly to charge on, but uh, still was pretty capable once you got it up to speed too, and just kind of covered a lot of bases really well. So that seemed like a cool one. Anything else you want to highlight in terms of other bikes or other sort of ancillary non-bike products that are in the mix here? Yeah. In terms of products, I think one of the more obvious ones for my answer would be the hustle Avery REM tech pedal, which I know you're getting time on now. And we just talked about that pedal a lot with hustles design engineer trip on episode 97, a little bit ago, I think in terms of unique products that really changed the way that I rode. Um, I don't, I can't think of anything else that I got on that would fit that description other than this magnetic pedal from, from hustle. And it's one of those products that I was pretty skeptical about before getting on it. Like really a magnetic pedal, like how well is this thing going to work? But it actually worked really well. And it was one of those things that by the time I was done testing it, it did not come off my bike. I just wanted to keep using it. And I, I think I'll, I'll have hustles pedals on at least one of the bikes I'm testing probably for the indefinite future, uh, just because of how well it mixes the freedom of a flat pedal with the retention of a clipless pedal. It's, it's pretty awesome and definitely something you gotta, you gotta try to, to understand just, just how well it performs and, and how, how it really changes the way that you, you ride. 
Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I don't have a ton of time on them yet, but a little bit. And like you, I was kind of skeptical, to be totally honest. You know, I'm so used to the just basic flats versus clips dichotomy is kind of the two options that are out there that it's a little hard to get your head around something that's completely categorically different from those. But um, so far, I am really finding that they seem like a compelling option for at least some people. I mean, like any product, they're not going to be for absolutely everybody, but there's more retention than I would have thought there would be. They're firmer and hold your foot on better than I would have guessed, which I think makes them kind of more of a useful middle ground between flats and clips than I kind of expected them to be. I I thought they were going to feel more like a normal flat pedal than they do. And uh, I talked about this with trip, but one of the things that I think is really cool about them is that you've got such a big flat interface between the steel plate that you bolt to the bottom of your shoe and the surface of the magnets that there's a particularly kind of solid, stable feeling connection there just because you have this really hard, broad, flat surface area and um, they feel just really solid and stable as a result of that in a way that I like quite a lot. The downsides are that they are heavy and Unlike a clipless pedal, there are some limits to how hard you can pull up on them and so on. But for a lot of kind of trail bike and enduro bike people, I can see them being a pretty cool option. They're neat. Yeah, for sure. Anything else you want to highlight while we're at it? Um, one product that I found myself just reaching for again and again after every ride or for every ride was the Fox Flex Air pant. It's really light pant, super breathable, like if I, if it was socially acceptable, I think I would never take these pants off. Like even, even for bed, I think I could sleep in these pants. They literally feel like pajama pants, but on the bike, they're super comfortable, more knee pads under them. And they're really stretchy, breathable, but for those, you know, chillier rides, you know, 40 to 60 degrees and, you know, going through a bunch of shrubbery and whatnot, they held up really well and I really found myself, you know, even if it was like 65 degrees out, I'm like, oh, I could probably wear shorts. I just said, screw it, put the Fox flex air pants on and had no regrets. Never looked back. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Luke, I think has been pretty impressed with those too. So a couple strong votes of confidence from the blister crew here. And we have a pretty big mountain bike pants roundup that's in the works right now. That'll be up relatively soon though not yet by the time this review goes live so stay tuned for that coming up soon well okay cool that's a good roundup of your standout 2021 products and so let's now look into the crystal ball and take a peek at 2022 is there anything you either are excited to get on next summer or any particular predictions for the bike industry in the year to come yeah i'll start with that first question and I've been really thinking about the Pivot Firebird 2.9 that was just updated this year, um, particularly because we've really liked the new versions of both the Trail 4.2.9 and the Switchblade that has the new vertical shock orientation. And I know Eric was a huge fan of the old Firebird. Um, so I, I'm just really excited to hopefully get on that new Firebird 2.9 and take it on some really steep and fast trails around CB and just really put it 
to its test. I was talking to to Ellery Slater, Pivot's marketing manager, a month or two ago about that bike, and yeah, she was hoping that we could get on it as well. And it seemed like CB was the the perfect testing ground for it, just with all the steep and gnar that we have around here. So yeah, fingers crossed for that one. And a, another product that's, I guess it feels kind of silly, but also not just because it's also proving to be somewhat of a game changer would be the new reserve Fillmore valves. Um, I know it, it might seem silly to just be frothing about this valve, but I was, I got a couple pairs from reserve and I was only able to just install them. But upon first impressions, one, I was able to set up my tubeless setup on my mountain bike using a floor pump without a air compression chamber and like not pumping super hard, like just casually pumping my tires up, just boom, seated the, seated the tubeless tire, snapped right into place. That was super impressive. And I guess after getting these valves, I thought about, or after hearing about these valves, I thought about all the times in the past where standard Presta valves ruined my ride. Um, particularly one ride where I was trying to put more air in my valve and somehow ended up taking the valve core out and running six PSI in my front tire. So I'm, I'm hoping that the reserve valve, the Fillmore valve is, is as much of a game changer as it, as they're hyping it up to be. Yeah. I've spent a bunch of time with those now and they're great. I mean, they're expensive. They're 50 bucks for a pair at retail price. So, you know, if people are shying away from them for that reason, I get it, but they are genuinely way nicer to work with than a standard Presta valve. I'm a very big fan. Yeah, they're definitely pricey, but they made me look back and think about all of the Presta valves I've tossed out or broken. So I think it, they might pan out to be one of those things that you kind of bite the bullet at first and then 10 years later you're still using them hopefully but yeah we'll see yeah time will tell with long-term durability on them you know they haven't been out for super long yet so we'll have to see on that part but as far as ease of use goes i'm all in on them and we'll just keep using them and see how it goes how about the prediction side of things anything you want to uh guess is going to come to pass in the next year yeah so i'd say general themes for 2021 seem to be revolving around mullet setups and high pivot bikes. I think uh, would pretty common to see those start to emerge more and more. And I don't really see much of an end to it. I think this this isn't a phase, mom, and it's going to continue into next year. I think we're going to see more mullets, high pivots, mix of both. Um, and yeah, every mullet and high pivot bike I've been on so far has been has been good, and then they seem to be maturing. So yeah, I think see more mullets and high pivot bikes in 2022. And similar to that, I think we're going to start to see more adjustability built into bikes. I know the consumers are s- seemingly starting to have more of a want to sort of tinker with their own bikes, right? Different sort of linkages that change the way your suspension feels, uh, ways that you can take your 
set up and make it a mullet, um, things like that. I think companies are starting to realize this and I would, I would bet that would start to see more flip chips integrated into bikes, um, aftermarket linkages available for bikes, not just from, you know, third-party companies, but from the companies producing the bikes themselves. Uh, I think that's going to start to catch on more as the, as the consumer becomes more in tune with these things and the demand grows for it. That's an interesting one. Cause I think the adjustability on frames is sort of come and gone in waves. There was a while, Oh, I don't know. Probably talking like 15 going on 20 years ago now where there were a whole lot of bikes that had wild adjustability on them, but it was sort of, in a lot of cases, it felt like it was just because the companies hadn't really figured out what they wanted the bike to be and just sort of threw the kitchen sink at it to make it a bit of a choose your own adventure for the rider. And then a lot of stuff kind of got pared down and a lot of that adjustability went away. But I do think you're right that we've maybe seen a little bit of an uptick back in the other direction, and it'll be interesting to see if that continues. So uh, that's a pretty good roundup of some guesses and We'll check back in a year and see how you did on all that. So thanks for running us all through it. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty confident with my picks. I put some money down on them. <laughs> so, but we'll see. You never know. All right. Well, thanks, Dylan, for that little roundup. And next up, we've got Luke Coppa. Well, Luke, welcome back on Bikes and Big Ideas. It's been a little bit. How you doing? Pretty good. Currently staring out at another snowy evening in Crested Butte. Um, it hasn't really stopped in a long time at this point. Um, but I was reminded that people were biking about three weeks ago at Hartman's. I talked to a lot of people who their last bike day was December 8th. And since then it has snowed about, I think, 120 inches as of recording this. So it, it, uh, it turned around very quickly. But yeah, it's nice to talk about bikes again. Right on. Well, mission for today is just sort of to do a little bit of a combo of a 2021 recap and then some predictions for next year. So to open it up, anything you want to shout out as being a real standout product or bike that you spent some time on last year? I can't. Well, I can't really talk about this without talking about my personal bike, which was new to me uh, this season, which was the Commonsol Meta TR29. Um, and part of the reason I bought that bike was because it looked appealing for kind of one bike to do all the riding. I do a large part was also because it was actually going to get delivered, uh, in early summer, which was pretty hard to come by this year. Um, and overall I've been really psyched on it. Um, we have a very long full review about it and a video as well. Um, but just, I was one and very impressed by how well it handled probably like uh, anywhere from like 40 to 60 bike park days, um, at Mount Crested Butte. And then also used it for most of the trail running I did. And while it's definitely not like it wasn't the most exciting when I just wanted to get a quick lap on some like mellow flow trails for everything else, it performed quite well and pretty much all the components held up. So overall, pretty psyched on that. The main question that I've been getting recently from people is whether I'm going to sell it next year. Um, and I don't think I will. Um, a lot of that also depends on if bikes are even available to buy next year. But 
the fact that I'm leaning towards, I don't think so, even regardless of inventory and stuff like that is I think just a testament to how well it ended up working out. So pretty psyched on that one. Nice. Yeah. That seems like a great all rounder. And (laughs) I do remember in the spring when you were talking about buying something new, just sort of racking my brain for something that a seemed like it fit the bill and B you had any shot of actually getting in any remotely reasonable time frame. And, um, that was kind of the best thing we came up with and I'm glad it worked. Yeah. Yeah. I managed to hit both those criteria pretty well. Um, but I also got to hop on a few other bikes that, um, Dylan and Eric were testing and that definitely made me think more about like, if I were ever to build a bike quiver, um, there were a few standouts first for like the bike park side that Canfield lithium was super fun. I was kind of like blown away by how much I liked it on the trails. I ride at uh Mount crested butte, just like really, really good in corners for a long travel 29er really good under braking. And I break a lot. So <laughs> that's always nice and also felt great in the air. So that was like, if I were to have two bikes, that would be like a really cool park bike. And at the same time, like pedaled really well as well. Um, and then on the opposite end of the spectrum, I did a lot of uh, laps on 401 here, which is one of the most popular trails in Crested Butte. And it involves a, a fairly long just climb on a, a dirt road and then some steep single track. And then it's pretty, pretty mellow, not many rock gardens or anything like that. And for that, the the Ibis Ripley AF became a quick favorite of mine, um, which was, I guess, not too surprising because it's a shorter travel bike, but um, it just seems so well suited to that sort of pretty long climb and then flowy descent that's pretty long and sustained. Um, And especially given that it was also the least expensive bike I spent time on this summer with very minimal drawbacks. Like we go into that in the the review, but really impressive from a price to performance ratio. And like in a dream world, it would be really cool to have, yeah, a bike like the Ripley AF for kind of longer days and mellower trails. And then a bike like maybe the lithium or something else like that for bike park days, or maybe doing laps on doctors and trying to trying and failing to keep up with people like Dylan Wood and you and Eric. (laughs) Yeah, that Ripley AF in particular just is such an impressive value for what it is. And Ibis has done a spectacular job of putting together a really, really good bike that's a whole lot less expensive than most of the things you might consider cross-dropping against it. So kudos to them for that. It's It's a cool looking one. Yeah, totally. Anything else you want to touch on in terms of just different products or any other bikes or anything else? Um, there are a few miscellaneous things. One we've already talked about a lot, those Hustle uh, Remtech pedals. I was super skeptical coming into it as a basically purely flat pedal rider. Um, and I mean, magnets, like <laughs> they, it just that concept alone seems a little gimmicky, but I ended up liking them a lot. And then like I did switch back to flats a few times and I was like, I might prefer these mag- fancy magnetic pedals, especially once I got the uh, shoe situation sorted. Um, so big fan of those. Um, and that was definitely one of the more surprising products I got on a few other miscellaneous ones. The Tannis uh, tubeless tire inserts. Um, ironically, I mean, maybe not 
given that it was 2021 they i ordered one for just my rear wheel on the meta and it arrived a day after i built up the bike and of course i wanted to go ride the bike hit a rock dented the rim and that dent is still there but after that i have yet to flat on that setup with the tannis insert so that's been really nice and it doesn't doesn't really affect the ride quality that much in a negative way um i've ridden kushkor a little bit and wasn't like a huge fan of how it rode um but the tannis insert i kind of just forgot about and it's let me not deal with any rear tire flats uh throughout the whole season which was nice um and then the last one i i tried a lot of different apparel and the main surprise for me was just these fairly basic among mountain biking apparel the fox ranger pants it's kind of like they're like you can wear it to the bar or you can wear it on the bike pant which i usually kind of um cringe at sometimes but that's what i've used it for and it's worked really really well um i was worried about like the cuffs tearing but they have held up very well it pedals great it's very breathable it's like a really thin soft shell material but for like the fall days here it was awesome to have on the bike and then i've also just worn it i mean probably like 50 days at this point just as a casual pant because i like how it looks Kind of a bunch of overlap with Dylan's answers for that part of the question. He also brought up the uh, hustle of magnetic pedals for pretty much all the same reasons that you did, though. He's coming at it from the opposite end of the spectrum as someone who normally rides clips. And then also shouted out the Fox Flex Air Pants, which I, in recording with him, uh, misremembered those being the ones that you were really psyched on, too, rather than the Rangers. But a couple of... Fox pants getting some love there. Yeah. Well, shout out to Fox. Good job on those pants. <laughs> yeah. Right on. <laughs> Was that the uh, moment uh, commander beer there? Oh, yeah. Uh, we, so we get a lot of stuff shipped to Blister HQ. And I mean, a lot of it's really, really cool, but I saw a big box today that was very heavy and it was from moment and i was very confused and then very pleasantly surprised that it was a whole bunch of their uh collab ipa with uh revision brewing company so took a few home with me and i'm a i'm a, I'm a fan i'm not a big ipa guy normally but i uh enjoy this one <laughs> perfect yeah a little uh f- super short review aside there i just saw it get pulled up on the video chat and had to yeah had to bring it up <laughs> Cool. Well, anything else you want to cover on the 2021 end of things before we get into 2022? Or is that kind of wrapping it up? Um, I think that's pretty much wrapping it up. On like the negative side, I would I'm still struggling to find a knee pad that I really like for ideally one that I can pedal in and that provides decent protection. I don't I think it's mostly a personal issue, but it seems like every knee pad in that category relies on some like silicone gripper thing to keep it up. And one, the main issue is that really irritates my skin. And I don't really have sensitive skin normally, but that just doesn't work for me. And two, I've also had a lot of issues with those pads like slipping down over the course of like a long bumpy descent. So in terms of stuff for people to work on, somehow figuring out how to keep a knee pad on your knees, make it breathable and protective without using grabby silicone type materials. Um, I would be very psyched. So that's something I'm hoping to see next year. Yeah. There's some room for getting that more dialed too. My personal favorites for a long time have been the 
POC system VPDs, but those do rely on some silicone grippers, which I personally tend to not have too much of a problem with. But um, yeah, nothing. I don't know. Nothing immediately springing to mind for a recommendation on that front, but I'll I'll ponder. Yeah, Dylan. Uh, Dylan's pair of uh, POC VPD knee pads are currently in HQ because he used them for our uh, tele skiing video, <laughs> um, and I've been debating trying to steal those to give those a shot at some point. Looking forward to that tele video. By the way, I think that'll be fun. Yeah, I think it should be should be interesting. <laughs> I need to try that one of these days, but I'm kind of scared. It's very very humbling. It uh it reminded me of when I like I've been skiing for much longer than I've been biking and tele skiing reminded me of when I first got on a mountain bike and I was just like god I really hate being bad at things. <laughs> and that was the main takeaway. I was getting very frustrated, but it was also very fun. It's like yeah, makes the whole mountain feel different than your usual setup. Yeah, something to be said for that. Well, to move into 2022 stuff then, is there Anything that you are excited to get on or check out next year or just any predictions for the bike world in the next year that you want to throw out into the world? Yeah, as far as stuff I'd like to try, the Pivot, the new Pivot Firebird is still a bike that I really want to try. I'm guessing Eric probably mentioned that and or Dylan. Dylan did, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, but like when I tried, I briefly rode the Pivot Trail 429 and... I was like, this bike is really cool. I wish it had more travel. And that seems like it could kind of be the Firebird. I mean, not an apples to apples comparison, but I tend to get along well with DW Link bikes. I like a efficient pedaling platform, but I also tend to appreciate a slacker uh, bike with more travel. So that seems like could be a really fun bike. Um, I also, as soon as uh, Common Sol release the meta sx um both me and my roommate brandon were pretty much obsessed from the start um he was riding a specialized status all summer before that he had a old the old uh meta sx which was much shorter travel in full 29 but a yeah basically a, a kind of like a meta am with a mullet setup and i think think shorter chain stays and basically designed to be more playful that sounds like it could be a really fun bike yeah those look cool and sort of per usual for comments all they've got just a spectacularly good set of builds on them for the money so there's some cool stuff happening there yeah hoping to be able to get one of those lined up at some point in the year to come though their slated availability is not for a bit so we'll see how that goes yeah yeah we both saw that we're like yeah maybe we'll get them next like 20 i feel like the bike industry makes you think like two years in advance at this point <laughs> yeah it, just based on availability <laughs> it's been an adventure but uh mm-hmm. we'll see yeah i'm also curious if uh i don't know when the last time ibis updated the ripmo was but kind of similar story based on my time on the ripley af i'd be very curious if maybe they'll update it this year or they'll maybe update it uh in two years but um that platform seems super appealing as well um mostly based on my time on the ripley like a longer travel version of that bike sounds like it could be a whole bunch of fun too yeah the v2 rip mode's been out for i think two seasons now so wouldn't be shocked if there was a new one on the way before super long we'll see i have no actual knowledge here but uh yeah who knows we'll see could be interesting yeah as far as like uh general predictions go i feel like 
going forward, and I think we're kind of already seeing this now, we're not going to see every single bike come out and be way longer, slacker, lower. And I'm pretty excited about that. The way I've been thinking about it is like in the past, you had the new bikes that were longer and slacker and more appealing to a lot of people. And then you had the bikes that hadn't been updated in a while. And kind of that was your option if you didn't want to go super slack and long. But now I feel like we're going to get basically like better versions of a more conservative geometry um, or just like more better executed takes on different types of bikes, like a mid-travel trail bike that's not super long and slack, but they've done a good job of figuring out what works on the geometry side. So I've, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to more, I guess you could say more refined geometry. And I feel like we're, we're getting there. Um, and it's looking pretty good. I mean, these days, uh, most bikes are quite good for a lot of people or, or specific types of people, but I'm curious to see, uh, how the geometry variation pans out over the next year. Yeah. I think that's spot on. And, like you were kind of saying so much of the progression in bike geometry was getting driven by the super long, low slack end of the spectrum. And I think that is kind of leveling off. We've sort of settled into a status quo for the time being anyway, on that front. And you're now seeing some bikes that are a little more mellow, but getting better thought out and better dialed in. And the, uh, Orbea Occam LT that I just started spending on time on is a perfect example of that. It's a little bit longer travel trail bike, but not super aggressive geometry, but at the same time, relatively long reach, steep seat tube, etc. It's not like it's a dated feeling bike. It's just a bike that's not trying to be a mini enduro bike that is super long and needs to be going real fast to come alive. And for a bunch of people, I think that's a great option. It's a thing that has a real place in the market. And, uh, that seems like a cool take on that sort of line of thinking so far. So I think you're right about that. And I do expect to see more of that kind of stuff trickling out. Yeah. That's exactly the bike I was thinking of. <laughs> yeah. I've been getting along well with that. It's a cool one. Nice. Yeah. Well, anything else before we wrap this up? Any final thoughts? Mo- not related to gear, but I'm excited about the world cup and enduro season next year i youtube randomly recommended uh the snowshoe recap from red bull this morning to me and so i got into that hole and i mean the season finale was absolutely ridiculous and i feel like there are so many people on the world cup downhill side both men and women that have a very good chance of doing quite well this year and vying for the title. Um, and same thing on the enduro side. Um, so yeah, I'm like, um, I usually, I shift most of my media consumption to ski content during the winter, but I'm still very, very excited to hopefully get a full, uh, season of, uh, mountain bike racing next year. And in particular, I'm really curious what, uh, Reese Wilson ends up doing next year. Cause I feel like, at the very end or like at the beginning who's doing really well then that absurd crash in leger and then was back on form and at the very top in snowshoe so i'm curious uh what uh what reese wilson will bring to the table next year but yeah overall just uh yeah hype to, to hype to watch a mountain bike racing again yeah last season was awesome and it'll be great to see 
what could happen and fingers crossed, hopefully a full season of it. And like you were saying too, both the men's and women's fields is just so deep. And there are so many people who are in contention for any given race now in a way that wasn't true pretty recently, especially on the women's side, but for both. And that's been really awesome to see. And like you really looking forward to the upcoming season. So yeah, totally bunch of good stuff there. Well, Luke, I'll let you get going. Thanks for the roundup and talk soon. Cool. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Thanks to Luke for that rundown and those good predictions. And next up, we've got Eric Friesen. Well, Eric, great to have you on as always. And to open it up, why don't you just give us a quick rundown on some of your favorite products from this last year of testing bike stuff for us? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess I'll I'll start with uh, products that I used this year, um, just because it's probably the most salient to to what's on my mind. Um, I kind of I thought about three that I wanted to talk about specifically. The uh, the first being um, I've been using some of those Rimpact and Rimpact Pro tire inserts, which have been pretty sweet. Going to an insert that's just so noticeably lighter, but still gives you some really good sidewall and rim protection, has been such a such a benefit for me this year. Um, it's just like, I, I definitely was someone who would notice, you know, running heavier inserts like Kush core, stuff like that. And having something that's a little bit lighter, that's quicker to spin up has been, uh, I've been a big fan of that. Yeah. So that's interesting. I have, those are one that I have not tried yet. And I'm kind of curious to Luke shouted these out in his segment. And I spent a bunch of time on the Tannis inserts, which are, uh, I've been pretty happy with, well, and one thing that I think those do, in addition to being a fair bit lighter than stuff like Kushcore, is that uh, I found that Kushcore does a really good job of protecting the rim from impacts and kind of damping things out, but they also feel a little kind of wooden and clunky feeling in some ways. And so I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are on rim pact in that regard. Yeah, to speak to the uh, the differences between the, like the rim pact and the Kushcore, um, I do, I kind of... I can relate to what you're saying about a, like a very stiff bordering on like wooden sort of dead feeling from your sidewalls. Um, the, the Kush core inserts are just so robust that, uh, I wasn't typically running PSIs that were lower, low enough, or I'm not heavy enough, or am not cornering hard enough to really like get to the point where I felt like I was ever, uh, pushing through that insert. The, uh, the Rimpact, um, I run the Rimpact insert in the front and the Rimpact Pro in the rear being a little bit lighter and seemingly a little, um, more, less dense, more open foam. Um, it is a little bit easier to feel like you can kind of like push the sidewall of the tire into a, a turn a little bit more, um, running similar PSIs on similar rims as someone who's a lighter rider, not riding like lift served and is running it for rim protection rather than absolute traction. It's a little bit easier for me to dial in, um, the correct PSIs to like run and still get that protection right on. I think kind of my preferences are a bit similar to yours on that too, where I'm not aiming to run the absolute minimum pressure I possibly can get away with just because yeah, rim protection and sidewall support are kind of higher priorities for me, but still haven't been totally thrilled with Kush core in that regard. So it's cool to hear that rim packs working a little better for you there. What else would you put on the list? 
this was my first year and first season ever riding the Maxxis uh, Dissector tire. Um, and I kind of fell in love with that thing. I'd never been on it before. Um, for the Gunnison Crested Butte Valley, you know, where I live, it's a lot of very fast trail, big miles, big days, and uh, tires with lower rolling resistance really, they typically tend to stand out. Um, and the Dissector, I found it to have a really nice balance between um, cornering bite and stability as well as like a, a faster rolling, quicker to spin up tire than like your your classic DHF or Asagai or something. Um, they also, this isn't really a good thing, but they make me feel like a mountain bike hero because you shred through them like none other. Like they are, the lifespan of these things is short which uh which makes you feel like you're riding hard whether or not that's actually the case um but for uh medium travel sort of trail bikes on our like loose over hard type trails i've i've kind of got a new like favorite tire for those conditions i think and to clarify are you mostly running those as a rear tire or both ends how's that going yeah no it's it's uh i'm running it front and rear um you know i don't know that uh that I would, I haven't tried like the bigger two, six casing version of that tire. Um, so I don't know how it would really do on like a, like a big enduro bike or like a DH bike. Um, I just, I can't say, but on the shorter travel trail bikes that I've been running them on, um, or like hardtails, things like that in the front, it's been very adequate for me and like the trails I ride. Right on. Those are a tire that I haven't totally clicked with. And I think a lot of it is that around here, where I'm at in the Pacific Northwest, one, we're just not riding that much hard pack. And so the rolling resistance portion of the program is just not as big a deal for where I happen to ride. And I also have had some of what you're talking about too, with the durability not being all that great, especially side knobs ripping off. So yeah, haven't been my favorite, but I can definitely imagine how they would be a better fit in some different terrain, different trails types and stuff. So that makes sense. And then, uh, the third, you know, the third thing that I used this year that I was really pretty impressed with was the, uh, the pivot trail 429 in that enduro build. Um, I'm certainly, I could never argue with anybody that I'm not like a pivot fanboy for sure. But, uh, I, I got along with that thing really, really well and found it to, you know, punch well above its weight in terms of ability. Um, and it was sort of interesting. There were a couple people in my primary riding group that all stepped down to shorter travel, sort of more aggressive trail bikes this summer. And it was just kind of interesting to see the different approaches that people were taking. You know, there was a transition in the mix. There was also a Norco in the mix and then the pivot and, you know, the things that they respectively did well or less well between the three was was kind of fun to like talk about on rides over the summer but in general that was a, a bike that i left with a really high impression of at the end of the summer yeah dylan was really high on that bike too that was the first thing he mentioned in his little rundown here and when you're talking about the other folks in your group riding some shorter travel stuff you're talking about the transition spur and norco optic would be the ones yeah yep exactly yeah, I mean, there's some cool stuff happening in that class of kind of more aggressive 120-ish travel trail bikes. And uh, yeah, we had everyone who got time on that Trail 429 at Blister was very, very high on it. And I know Noah Bodman's been a big fan of his transition spur. So 
uh, and I've been really getting along well with the updated Gorilla Gravity trail pistol that I'm spending some time on right now. So there's been okay. a bunch of good stuff happening on that front. And um, yeah, cool stuff. Bunch of fun little short travel rippers there. Yeah. So those were those were three things that I left the year uh, that were new to me and I left pretty impressed with. Um, I've got uh, a couple things picked out that I'm kind of excited to hopefully get a chance to to play around with uh, later this year. Um, the first one being, and we've talked a bit about it, that uh, the Loam Lab Counterpunch grips. Um, they're the grips that have those uh, those small sort of um, indented uh, barns on them, and uh, it just. I was definitely of the generation I grew up riding hardtails with barons, so it makes me chuckle for no other, you know, for no other reason. Um, but I do think there's, you know, I'd be interested to see a the uh, the knuckle protection because you know a lot of the trails we ride um, in the area do have like some trees in proximity, but also the uh, the ability to um, kind of square up your your shoulders and your upper body and use your your little nubs on your grips to kind of like throw your bars around like it would be interesting to see if there's any any reality to kind of the marketing hype there yeah those look like a cool one and um something that i haven't totally got my head around is that thought about being able to use the sort of outside of your hand to help sort of steer the bar and throw the bike around a little bit i could see that being of some use Personally, I tend to sort of almost kind of have my pinky finger hanging off the end of the bar halfway in my typical setups most of the time or sort of partway. Um, and so it would definitely be a change for me on that front. And um, on the other hand, it would would have saved me from one pretty brutal uh, hand smash, at least earlier this season, where I uh, did enough damage to my pinky to need to take a couple weeks off the bike. So uh, might be something to those. Yeah, it's just it's a pretty low risk uh, thing that I'd be you know excited to try. Um, you know, you're not putting yourself out hundreds of dollars to try something that you know might be subjectively um, more or less valuable than you expect it to be. So, um, the uh, the next one is that uh, that O chain that you're seeing a lot of riders pick up and use these days. I've never I've never even had a chance to stand on one, um, but just with who you're seeing riding them right now it makes me interested and makes me want to know more um there's definitely there's a, a weight and efficiency penalty there seemingly just doing a little bit of research so it'd be interesting to see for someone who um again rides fairly fast smooth trail and you know uh, distance and efficiency are often kind of bigger focuses. I don't know how practical it would be for me, but it would be pretty cool to see like what the hype's about and just see like how much you do or, or don't notice reduced pedal kickback in, in your riding. I think that's, I'm pretty interested in that. Yeah. We're working on getting one of those sent in for review. So hopefully that'll come through pretty soon. And if it does, we'll definitely make sure to get you some time on it too, to get a second opinion. But, uh, that's one I'm curious to try too. And it'll be an interesting thing too, because I think the degree to which it is beneficial is likely going to vary a bit by what bike you happen to be putting it on. And so it also would be cool to kind of get a few different people on a few different bikes at Blister on that to get a bigger range of stuff to test and sort of see how that all shakes out. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it certainly, um, uh, marginal gains, but man, you know, they can, they can all add up to make something pretty cool sometimes. 
Um, and then the last one, um, I had a friend that did a lot of, he shot a lot of the video for what was initially released. Um, but rock shocks is a flight, um, flight attendant. Is that what they call it? Yeah. Flight attendant. Um, that looks pretty cool. I was a big fan of, uh, Fox's live valve when we tested that a couple of years ago. And I, I was pretty impressed. I know they're also coming out with a, a V2 version here soon, but, um, I'm definitely, when it comes to suspension, I'm, it's seemingly fairly on board with the idea that my bike can have batteries. Um, so I'd love to see like how it does, how it works. Um, you know, the, the individual that, uh, I know that has ridden it a bunch left very, very impressed, um, and was pretty high on it. So, and he's, uh, extremely quick and proficient rider. So, you know, if he, if it's something that works for him, like I'd, I'd be interested to see how it works for someone like me. Yeah, that seems like a cool implementation of an electronic suspension thing that, uh, and I do think we're going to be seeing a whole lot more variants on that theme come into market too. And it'll be cool to see how much more sophisticated they can get. You know, right now, Live Valve and the flight attendant are kind of, by and large, trying to be clever about uh, actuating something kind of like a traditional climb switch. And, you know, certainly that seems like it could be pretty beneficial for some people, especially if you're kind of riding more rolling terrain on a bike where you're really trying to put some power down in a lot of places. But um, it'll be cool to see how that tech develops. And I don't think it's crazy to imagine that we'll hit a point at some point in the future, not too far out, maybe where they're doing a whole lot more sophisticated, like changing compression settings and stuff on the fly rather than sort of just the more binary nature of those systems as they exist right now but uh yeah hopefully we can get some time on flight attendant soon too and very curious to see how that stacks up well yeah thanks for doing this and have fun in canada thank you hopefully everything goes smoothly there uh should be awesome if you can make it up there so yeah fingers crossed we'll uh hope the uh upside down snowpack figures itself out quick and uh it usually doesn't take too long here but it'll be a couple days yep yeah right on well, let's talk to you later, man. Sounds great. Thanks to Eric for that little rundown. And last, but certainly not least, we've got Noah Bodman coming on. Well, next up, we've got Noah Bodman. Noah, welcome back. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for uh, having me back. Yeah, pleasure as always. So mission as we've been doing with everybody else here is just to do kind of a quick recap of some of the favorite stuff that you spent some time on this last year so anything to spring into mind immediately yeah well uh you know in light of having two small children that arrived i've been doing a little less reviewing this year but i still did get on a a couple of things that were interesting um i got a well, I did a couple of reviews on Fox suspension. I did the the new Fox 34, uh, and then I also did the new DHX coil shock. Um, the 34, I was super psyched on. Uh, had that mounted up on a transition spur. Um, and, uh, you know, that fork kind of comes in that that middle ground where, like, it's capable enough that you can – send it down some chunky trails and and it handles them pretty well, but it's still fairly light. You know, it's not, uh, it's certainly not replacing the 36. And so that kind of puts it in that nebulous middle ground that, uh, that's 
you could call it a trail bike. You could call it a down country bike. Um, the way I've got the spur set up is sort of at the, uh, I guess the aggressive end of down country. Uh, it's over forked slightly with 130 mil travel 34. Uh, and so, yeah, I was really excited about that setup. You know, it's still light enough that I'm totally happy going for big, long backcountry epics on that bike. Uh, but if I, you know, take it to my normal around town trails and send it down something jumpy and techy, then, uh, it's totally fine. Fork handles it nicely. Um, so yeah, I think that 34 is a pretty cool option that also splits the difference. Uh, you know, you've got like a SID and the 32, sort of a notch down from the 34. And I would say the RockShox Pike is a slight step up from the 34. Uh, not, not a big step, but a slight step up. The, the Pike is a little heavier, a little burlier. So just, you know, a little more descending oriented where the 34, you save, I don't know, I, I want to say it's like 150 grams, give or take, uh, which isn't nothing. Um, and, and the, the pike is offered in slightly longer travel options than the 34 as well. So it really allows you, if you're building up a bike to kind of pick the front suspension that exactly fits what you're trying to accomplish with that bike. Uh, and so it's cool that the 34 is that option. And it's also cool that, uh, for that option, it does, it does what it does really well. Um, and then, yeah, the other thing I got from Fox was that DHX coil, which is sort of this weird thing that I wasn't quite sure what the deal with it was. You know, Fox has the DHX two, which has been around for a little while now, and it's a well-regarded shock. Uh, they redid the DHX2, I think, what, last year? Uh, they did a sort of a major revision on it. And, you know, the old version generally was well-reviewed. The new version is even better. And so it's kind of like, well, the DHX2 is out there. It's great. Everybody loves it. So why? What's the point of the DHX? Because it's it's a bit cheaper. The DHX is like, I think, $110 cheaper than the DHX2, but it's not so much cheaper that it's clearly a budget price point kind of shock. Um, so I was a little confused about it going into it. Uh, it's a different format on it. You know, we weighed into this a bit on the review, but it's a, it's a single tube damper versus the twin tube damper on the DHX2. So there are some functional differences with it. It gets external, uh, toolless, uh, adjustments. So you don't have to break out the three and the six millimeter every time you want to tweak your damping, but it also has less adjustments. Uh, it really just gets a low speed rebound and a low speed compression. Um, so. I was a little skeptical of it going in, um, but riding it, I was on one hand, I was totally blown away. It has incredibly good small bump sensitivity. It irons out the trail better than most rear shocks I have been on. And it's certainly at least on par with the DHX2. Uh, but it also, at least on my bike, so I, I was riding it on a specialized enduro. That shock on that bike, I would say it got completely fucking crushed on any large impact. Uh, 
it has a really nice bottom out bumper, so it doesn't get like that metallic clang. But yeah, if you get into the second half of your travel with that shock, there's just not much there. Um, so I struggled with that a lot. I went down this stupid rabbit hole of progressive coils, um, which was interesting in its own right because, uh, different progressive coils from different brands ride very differently. Uh, even if their stated, uh, spring rate is the same. Um, so, uh, but I managed to get my hand on some from Kane Creek, some from MRP. I ended up with a, 450 pound from MRP. Uh, but that's, that's a whole different story. Uh, but anyways, I got the shock working satisfactorily, but it, it kind of feels like a case of, uh, it's a first year product. Maybe Fox is still sorting out their tunes. I think there is, uh, there is something kind of cool there, but at least on that bike with the shock I had with the tune it had, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't quite there yet. I've just started spending time on one of those on the Orbea Occam LT. Uh, not a lot of time on it yet, and it's currently just a touch oversprung for me. I'm working on tracking down a slightly lighter spring, which has been its own adventure given 2021 fun of uh, all things supply chain. But um, it'll happen. I'll get that squared away. But on that bike, I granted, again, a little oversprung, so maybe that's helping the cause in that particular regard some. But I uh, have not experienced any of kind of that blowing through the travel sensation that you have. And maybe it's just that they have the tune dialed better. Not 100% sure. But um, I've been getting along with it really well, actually, on that bike. It feels like a good fit. And, and what you've said there, you know, I have a few friends that have ridden it. Friends whose opinion I trust on these sort of things. And and their opinion has echoed yours. Uh, none of them have rode it on the enduro you know they all had different tunes for whatever bike they were on um but they've yeah gotten along with it pretty well and they've been pretty happy with it and they were also pretty happy with the float x which is the air sprung version but it's it's essentially the same damper so um so yeah i i have heard good reviews on this shock from a number of other people uh it just didn't quite work for me but like i can see the potential there like it worked the first half of the travel it feels so good uh like it's supportive enough while also just like leveling the trail uh like insane amounts of traction and corners but then you know if you need to push into it to pop off of whatever it's there as as long as you don't push too hard um and so, you know, it kind of has me wondering if I just have some weird tune, you know, something, something's amiss in that shock, or if they just miss the tune for this particular bike. I mean, who knows? Yeah, that's interesting. And particularly given that, I think we'll uh, update your review in a bit once I've got some more time on the Occam and kind of throw in my two cents on how it works on that bike with a different tune and all the rest and uh, see how that shakes out. And I have also been riding the Float X. We'll have a review of that up quite soon. So I won't go too deep on that, but it's been working pretty well too. So I think there's definitely some potential in those and yeah, maybe just a whiffed tune for your Enduro there. Okay, well, that's a good roundup of a couple of the more interesting things you tested this year. How about any predictions for 2022 or any 
products that you're excited to get on in the coming year? Anything on either of those fronts? Oh, predictions. Um, everything is going to continue to be a mess. And uh, products that I am trying to get that the companies say that I will have in the next month or two, my prediction is that I do not have them in the next month or two. And that, uh, you know, being up here in Montana, my riding season doesn't really start until like maybe end of March, realistically, like mid to late April is kind of when we're getting rolling on bikes and the snow's melting out. And so, yeah, my prediction is that I will be on the same bikes that I was on last summer come this spring, uh, even though I'm I'm trying to do a little uh, quiver reorganization. I think I'm going to be on the spur and the enduro, which isn't a bad thing. Those are both great bikes and I like them. But, you know, I, I get the wandering eye every winter. So, so right. yeah. I, I know how that goes. Any teasers for what you're uh, attempting to reconfigure to or going to hold your cards close to your chest on that one? Yeah. So I'm, I'm attempting to reconfigure the Specialized Enduro into a Norco range uh, based in large part on your recommendation, David. Um, you know, this is this is like an ongoing saga where you know, I used to kind of have the two bike quiver of a downhill bike and then some sort of, you know, 150 ish mil travel, uh, all around pedally bike. Um, but then, you know, enduro bikes started getting so capable. I, I really thought that, yeah, you know, I can get rid of the downhill bike and, and replace that with an enduro bike and then scale the pedally bike down a bit. Uh, which I did, uh, and I've, I've gone through a couple different iterations of that, and it sort of works, but, you know, at the end of the day, an enduro bike is an enduro bike, and a downhill bike is a downhill bike, and I miss having a real downhill bike. Uh, the problem being that a lot of the stuff I ride does not have a lift to the top, and organizing a shuttle is a hassle, so it's nice to be able to pedal to the top. And so... Uh, this year's uh, installment of this saga is I'm going for the bike that is the closest thing to a downhill bike that I think that I can get that is still at least marginally pedalable to the top. And I think that seems like the Norco range is a pretty good bet. Yep. The full review of that bike actually just went live this morning as of when we're recording this. And uh Yep, that is pretty much exactly what the range is. So I think you're on the right track there and be very curious to see how you get along with it once it shows up. But um, it's impressive. I'm really excited about it. Uh, And I I anticipate continuing to be very excited about it until about halfway up the first climb. And then I'm going to start questioning my decision. Uh, But then the other part of that is, you know, if I'm scaling up, you know, if the Norco range is a is a bit more bike than the specialized enduro then that leaves me with the transition spur and so i figure i can scale that one up a little bit too i really like the spur it's a super fun bike but there's plenty of times that i just kind of wished that it was a bit more bike um and so i threw some money at a propane hugine uh, which is like a 140 mil rear, 150 mil front. Uh, but still, you know, it's supposed to be a pretty efficient, uh, pedalable bike, but just, you know, 
a notch up from the spur in, in terms of descending capabilities. So we'll see how that thing goes out. Uh, you know, I'll admit that some of it was just that I think they, those things look cool. <laughs> so, um, and supposedly they're, <laughs> supposedly they're available this winter. Uh, so yeah, here I am holding my breath on that. Well, fingers crossed for you on both of those fronts and, uh, good luck. And so I guess for my whole, round of this since i haven't talked about my answers to these questions yet the first couple of bikes that i want to shout out as being kind of the real standouts from this year are one that range uh it's kind of a niche thing and a bit of a specialized tool but for the right person and the right use case it is pretty special pretty standout um people should go read the full review we'll link to that in the show notes but it's just even by the standards of a 170 millimeter travel enduro bike it is a lot of bike both on the way up and on the way back down and so for your use case of closest thing to a downhill bike that still kind of pedals i think it's right on and uh if people are after that it's really one hell of a bike for that particular kind of use case then for something a bit more versatile the we are one arrival is going to get a shout out here too uh review of that went up pretty recently Basically, it is their 150 millimeter rear travel kind of trail slash enduro blurring the lines bike with a 160 travel fork. And for kind of that class of travel, it is especially lively and poppy and energetic feeling, but manages to sort of do that while also being reasonably stable and composed if you're pushing it pretty hard and so i think it's a bike that works best for a relatively aggressive rider who wants to kind of be looking for little things to jump off of and gap and double up every little trail feature they can find and it kind of wants to be ridden with a little bit more precision maybe rather than just steamrolling stuff but for that sort of person it is really kind of a standout bike in that it feels very different than most other things that you might compare it to kind of in terms of similar class of bikes and whatnot and does what it does exceptionally well and then the third bike to round it out from much earlier this year was the marin elroy their super aggressive hardtail which i would love to see them come out with a higher end build on it they only have a single build that's kind of mid-range stuff it's shimano dior drivetrain and a marzachi z1 fork and stuff so totally functional stuff but nothing fancy but the frame rides really well they've kind of done an interesting thing in that they've made a really high-end steel frame with fancy triple butted tubes and whatnot and then put a not especially expensive build on it and the geometry is dialed and for just a really aggressive really fun hardtail it is super impressive and i had just more fun riding that than most of the stuff i reviewed this year it's kind of a goofy thing to have a hardtail with a 63 degree head tube angle and long chain stays and a big reach and stuff but it's a riot does marin sell that thing as a frame only they do yeah so it's frame only or one complete build and those are the two options for it the sizing is also a little weird they only make two which have a 480 and then a 510 millimeter reach so they're gigantic um i'm six feet tall and is riding the smaller one and that 
felt great. So uh, they could probably stand to stretch the size range a little bit too. But if it fits you and you're after that kind of thing, it's super, super good. Yeah, I do love a good uh, aggressive hardtail. Uh, we didn't talk about that, but I still have my uh, my pole Tyval hanging in the garage, which, you know, I don't ride it all the time. But when you're in the mood to just go do something stupid on a hardtail, it's it's a lot of fun. It's really good. Yeah, and I still have my BTR Ranger, too, which is similar boat, similar deal. It's, you know, when you want to ride a hardtail on something silly, it's fun. I wouldn't want to do it every day, but I also really like it. Uh, I like it in the spring when everything's muddy and sloppy and I just don't feel like maintaining a full suspension bike. You know, there's a it's like when there's mud caked all around the chain stays and C stays on the hardtail. It's like eh, eh, whatever. There's no pivots. I don't care. Yep, exactly. It's great. Then for a couple of non complete bike things, uh, the Vorsprung Seekus was one of the more interesting things I reviewed this last year. Uh, for people who aren't familiar, it's their kind of fanciest air spring add-on for a bunch of forks, mostly stuff from Fox and Rock Shocks. And it is meant to give an air sprung fork a much more linear coil-like spring curve for the first about two-thirds of the travel before it starts ramping up more aggressively. And I believed them that it would do that, but was kind of surprised at just how dramatic a difference it makes in terms of performance and the way the fork feels. I've tested it in three different forks now, uh, Fox 40, Fox 38, and a RockShox Zeb. And in all of them, it both improves small bump sensitivity and midstroke support pretty significantly. The difference is a little less striking in the 40, especially, I think mostly because that's already kind of got a an air spring with a bigger cha- negative chamber and more real estate afforded by the dual crown fork. Let's Fox do some things that are a little trickier than you can cram into the leg of a single crown fork. And then conversely, on the Zeb, it made the biggest difference. And in large part, that is I love the chassis on the Zeb. The damper's really good. The stock air spring just doesn't have as much mid-stroke support as I would like it to. And the Seekus does an unbelievably dramatic job of just fixing that. And um, I am hugely impressed with how it works. I really, really love the Zeb with the Seekus in it. And I'm honestly kind of lukewarm on it without. So uh, it went a really incredibly long way and was more impressive than I thought it was going to be. And I'm actually just starting now to test the SmashBot, their coil conversion for the similar forks. So uh, we'll have a full review of that and kind of a head-to-head comparison of the SmashBot and Seekus up in a little while once I get some more time on that. But the uh, Seekus especially has been just tremendously impressive. Yeah, that's really interesting because I, uh, you know, I spent a little time on that Zeb and and had a similar take to you, but I never got the chance to ride it with the Seekus. So that that's cool to hear that you can kind of unlock that fork a little bit. Yep. And then to kind of talk about a couple things that I'm excited to spend some time on while we're talking about forks, I uh, just got in the Olin's RXF 38 to test, which uh, is their new 38 and Zeb competitor, basically. And I reviewed the 
RXF 36, their more longstanding kind of 36 and lyric competitor earlier this year and really liked it. But basically for the application I was testing on at 170 millimeters of travel, just wanted basically a stiffer version of that. And they didn't need to change anything else. Spring and damper really good. Love the way everything else about it worked, but just wanted the burlier, stiffer one. And I am hoping that the 38 RXF 38 proves to be that. So um, only have one ride on it so far. And then it snowed a little bit here. So I've had to had a quick hiatus from doing bike stuff for the last little bit here. But uh, it's warming up, stuff's melting out real fast. And I'll be back on that very soon. So we'll have a flash review of that up soon. Initial take is that it's definitely clearly a whole lot stiffer than the RXF 36. So far, the small bump sensitivity is feeling a little bit less impressive than it did in the RXF 36, but I also definitely don't have the setup fully dialed yet. And so TBD, if I iron that out with a little bit of tuning work or not, don't have enough time on it yet to uh, feel confident in my assessment on that one way or the other. But fingers crossed. And then should also be hopefully getting the new Manitou Dorado in relatively soon and uh, be very curious to see how that goes. I owned one of the prior generation ones um, kind of earlier in its run in this would have been like 2015, 2016, maybe something like that, or maybe even a couple years before that. Um, and certainly for its day, it was by far the best air spring that I had ridden in a fork at that point. Obviously things have improved a whole lot since then. Um, but it's been a long time since I've ridden an inverted fork and I'll be very curious to see how the chassis on that feels in terms of stiffness and whatnot, because traditionally they have been not great for torsional stiffness, which it's debatable how big a deal that is necessarily, but it certainly feels different. And, uh, I really, really like Manitou's Measure Pro, their long travel enduro single crown fork, which is a conventional upright fork and pretty different than the Dorado in a bunch of ways. But the spring design and, uh, damper architecture are somewhat similar between the two. So, um, curious to see how it all stacks up in the Dorado. We don't need to wade into the upright versus inverted, inverted fork debate, but yeah, that's probably a whole episode into itself. Yeah. We can but I think, I mean, of the relatively major suspension manufacturers, I think the Dorado's the only inverted one right now, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, every couple of years we hear some rumor that Fox or RockShox is dabbling around with pro prototypes, but they never seem to go anywhere. Yeah, Fox tried a prototype for you. That was a while ago now. That was probably pushing 10 years ago at this point. Yeah. And I've seen some pictures of prototypes from RockShox, which I think maybe went less far than the Fox did. Well, and even there aren't too many of the smaller players that are doing inverted double crowns either. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, there's Intend that has that weird one and a half crown thing. Right. The Bandit, I think, is what that one's called. And I'm not thinking of too much more. Yeah, it's kind of the exception these days. So very curious to see how it goes. Yeah. Uh, oh, and one other bike that I'm excited to get on here that I should hopefully be getting somewhat soonish is the new Rocky Mountain Element, their new short travel aggressive bike, kind of along the lines of the 
transition spur that you've been riding uh, another 120 rear travel but pretty slack pretty long i think it's a 65 degree head tube angle and long and aggressive geometry for what it is and i tested rocky's big enduro bike the altitude earlier this year and liked it quite a bit and uh i think but i also it kind of felt like a little bit more of a slightly quicker handling more trending towards long travel trail bike thing relative to other 160 plus travel enduro bikes obviously it's still a big bike and a lot of bike but compared to a lot of the things that you might stack it up to on paper it was just edging that direction a tiny bit and so i think the shorter travel more compact version of that could add up to be something pretty cool and looking forward to checking that out yeah that looks like a pretty cool bike curious to hear your take on it should theoretically be getting that before super long here but it's been a weird year for such things so uh fingers crossed i guess well i think our work is done here thanks again noah been uh great having you on as always and talk to you soon sounds great we'll talk to you later well that's it for this edition of bikes and big ideas and if you're enjoying the show then please give us a rating in apple podcasts I also want to say thanks to Dylan, Luke, Eric, and Noah for the conversations. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon. Happy New Year, everybody.